0: Hello, Edgar. Hello, Grégoire. How are you doing? Doing okay,
1: thank you. How's life? How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. So today Mm -hmm. we are going to offer a very special podcast to our audience, a podcast on race and racism and how we try to work on it in our psychonetic frame.
0: Now, we need to make this clear. We recorded this podcast 18 months ago. And to clarify, we are recording this introduction on October 2020. So the podcast was recorded
1: 2018. So you will hear no mention of all the events that shaped American society recently. It's not that we didn't think about them. It's just that they didn't happen. No, we're not that. in denial. Is that- so you will hear both Edgar and myself and two of our friends and colleagues, Tina Paul and Peter Yegerman. And, well, let's just say that we did our best. I think after listening the edited version of the podcast, it's both interesting, but also I want to say that, of course, there's room for improvement. You will see. The fact that we are using different theoretical frames probably has something to do with that. Yeah,
0: we not only talk from a psychoanalytic perspective, there are also some takes from a psychological perspective, and there are some comments and expansions from a sociological perspective.
1: And we we all come from different places so then mm-hmm. we all experience race and racism in very different ways and I think you can hear it but you can also hear the difficulty to talk about it and how it's such a sensitive and personal subject that it feels sometimes difficult to address some questions with without being worried to hurt the other's feelings mm-hmm. to feel maybe misunderstood etc. I think that's something people would notice. I just want to put it forward before to make sense, maybe sometime of what happens, knowing that the four of us are really good friends and we really respect each other, both personally and professionally. You're going to see how we are trying to talk about race and racism in general and how to work on it in a second frame. You're probably going to see how we try to bring some concepts and how they can be both helpful and uh, not so helpful at some other points. In
0: addition to what Grégoire has said, we also acknowledge that we are immersed in a climate that makes it difficult to distinguish the personal from the professional around this subject, but you will also be able to listen and perceive how, from different cultural perspectives, we approach the subject, some of us with more confidence and some of us with less confidence.
1: As you will see, the theme is, of course, way too wide and complex to be addressed in just one podcast, so just as usual, but even more... So for this podcast, please let us know if you want us to expand, if you want to question, if you want to comment what we said we are expecting to do a follow up podcast. And please go ahead and be critical, bring your ideas and we will uh, be very happy to work on it. Let's just say that there are a lot of things to say on this matter. And that when we recorded it, I think there were not that many conferences on the subject. I think today, if you want to discuss race and racism in the scientific frame, you will have opportunities to listen or read more articles and books than at the time we recorded. Mm-hmm. There are particularities to race and racism, but I'm pretty sure people will recognize some of the dynamics that we will be describing and talking about in other kinds of segregation, in violence against women, against uh, other kinds of minorities uh, all around.
0: And this is not the last podcast on race and racism. The next two podcasts will offer an interview with Lee Jenkins. Lee Jenkins is Grégoire's supervisor, and he will share with our audience his experience and thoughts on
1: race and racism in his psychoanalytic practice.
0: Okay. Okay. So
1: I guess that's it for this unusual introduction. Now we are going to leave the rest of the discussion to our former selves and our dear friends tina paul and peter yegerman if you want to leave us some comments or questions you can contact us directly at discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me
0: or you can also join our facebook group discussions on psychoanalysis you can leave us messages there or you can post publicly in that forum
1: And you can use our Twitter account just the same way. The links will be in the description of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. (laughs) Today we are not alone, we have two guests. Hello Tina.
2: Hello, I'm Tina Paul. I am a licensed psychoanalyst and I'm also a developmental psychologist.
3: And hello Peter. Hello Gregoire. I am a licensed psychoanalyst and I am privileged to be a classmate of everybody here.
1: Before I go any further, Edgar is going to talk about the concept of intersectionality.
0: To put it in a very simple way, we're talking about the multiplicity of identities an individual carries in society. So when we're talking about intersectionality, we're talking about the different identities and how they carry power or not within the context of a community.
2: I would also add to that that the idea is that we're talking about experience of marginalization typically when we talk about intersectionality and power, and the idea being that the experiences of two social identities that are oppressed or marginalized are not just additive in nature, but they um, intersect in very specific ways to form a unique experience. So being a woman and being black doesn't just add up, but it's a very specific experience of being a black woman, for example.
1: Now we are going to talk about social consideration uh, regarding racism. You will hear in this podcast that we will use the term racism in different ways. My sense is if you use the social construct of race to discriminate people and to attribute to those races specific qualities, then the reasoning becomes by definition racist. And that racism is a way to organize people around the social construct of race, which has a lot of different clinical consequences.
2: I do think that race has sort of a unique position in the way it's tied to color, especially in this country, in this historical context.
0: So if I'm h- hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that race is not an umbrella for other intersections.
2: Yes, I'm thinking of racism more as a organizing social structure rather than as an individual level characteristic. And I also would add to that that racism is intimately tied to power so that the dominant group or, you know, the group in power can be racist, but not vice versa.
3: Peter. We're going to be talking about the clinical encounter, and we're going to be talking about how we deal with race as a factor and what preconceptions we may bring, including, I think, very importantly, what Tina's talking about, racism. But I think that race alone at least needs to be reserved as a neutral factor.
0: Edgar, I would like to add that from the natural sciences perspective, race is only one, the human race. So that needs to be taken into account
2: race is a socially constructed term there are no biological race differences i mean there are certain maybe genetic markers that appear more in one ethnic or racial group than others but overarchingly race is a social construct however it has in the context of the social history of the united states has become a meaningful category of identification for people and it is associated typically with certain you know physical characteristics for example so,
1: and now we're going to talk about racism within psychoanalysis more specifically. For all those who studied psychoanalysis in the US, you probably noticed how unfrequent it was for psychoanalysts to use social concepts and the concept of racism more specifically in the recent times. We noticed that we couldn't find any clear school of thoughts, maybe besides the relationals, who would include that.
2: A little anecdote to share, since I started my training in 2010, I think around 2011 or 12, I started a little folder on my computer that was called Race and Psychoanalysis, and it had not very many articles in it. That being said, there are some people who've worked on this topic for years, and I don't want to pretend that that wasn't the case, but clearly it was not a topic that was presented in our psychoanalytic training. We all took one class that's state-mandated. That's the only reason we had this class that was called what? Social cultural influences?
1: Social considerations were not included in any other classes.
2: It's sort of, we have a blind spot, I feel, there in psychoanalysis, sort of as a field, and, and psychoanalysts in particular, more so than psychotherapists. We have very few candidates of color at, at our institute or analysts.
3: What I would add to that is that the training at NPAP is perhaps particularly weak in this regard because we don't learn how to present cases until the end of our training. And it's my understanding that normally one presenting a case, even a case presentation by any social worker, would delve into the socioeconomic aspects far more than we were ever trained even to think about it. I think that has left us kind of winging it as we receive our patients from a variety of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different nationalities, different, if I can use the word, races. We are, I think, not really prepared to factor that in, in the way that we perceive the patients.
1: I was actually surprised to see how poorly uh, the social was integrated, because when I studied uh, psychoanalysis in my university, it was actually everywhere.
2: Yeah, the same here. When I studied in Germany, actually, psychoanalysis was part of my psychology studies there, undergraduate, and it was also much more part of my studies there.
1: Let's talk about racism in psychoanalytic terms. Maybe the first thing that came to my mind is that uh, racism could be seen as an expression of xenophobia. And that xenophobia can be connected to the human's tendency to split between good and bad objects.
2: I think this goes back to the idea of, you know, is racism a thing on its own? Free of is racism kind of a category in people's minds or a race? You know, when you talk about xenophobia, splitting, compartmentalizing, you know, and, and social psychologists would cer- certainly argue that people, you know, have schema and, and race, maybe just another way by which people compartmentalize or split. But racism, I would argue, is always overlaid with power structure and the social.
3: I'm not sure it's that different from factoring in the ethnic background in any other way of a patient, whether they're of Italian descent. I mean, in America, we, we usually pass over this, but it doesn't really escape our attention to wonder whether somebody is an Irish Catholic or Catholic of Italian descent or Jewish. When did they come to the country? All of these things we sort of silently factor into our sense of a person. And I think we do this as we greet the patients as well. I don't think this is just a question of the color of one's skin.
1: Yeah, of course not. It felt to me that uh, going through this idea of separating the good and bad objects, uh, there's something about race that we will find in psychoanalysis that it doesn't mean it has the function, but it it could and can have the function to create some sense of purity and to keep the strange outside of the subject. It's this kind of projection that can go along with the tendency to split. It doesn't mean it will actually uh, function this way, but it can lead to uh, those kind of functioning, it seems to me.
2: My question would be, is that sort of a quote-unquote natural tendency that we have to split? And I would argue, by the way, wherever there is a split, there's a projection. I think the two always go together. I do definitely think that as a culture, we do that. We split into good and bad and... Arguably, oppressed minorities become the container of all the split of intolerable parts of ourselves. The other, the foreign, the uncontainable. But who that gets projected onto or into is again informed by who has the power.
1: There is something at stake around the question of the integration of alterity. The interesting part for psychoanalysts is that the analyst is clearly among the others. How many times did we have patients who, during the first session, explained to us how strange it is to confine so many secrets to someone they actually don't know? And certainly the work in psychoanalysis will help to decrease the amount of fantasies and to bring more subtleties. Each society will create something of a point of reference for what is relevant and what is not. Each of our patients and each of us actually carry that within us. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, and we make something specific of it. And I feel like the question is especially relevant in terms of racism. And we will talk about how, in psychoanalysis, we will partially work on deconstructing the point of reference that people integrated or identified with or identified against.
2: So Grégoire, are you talking about, when you say the point of reference, are you talking about certain established norms and ideas, ideologies that I'm dominate society? or Yes, that, you know, the societies
1: are, are or groups and that every society, big or small, it starts from a family, it goes until countries where you have this legitimate discourse or things that are allowed to be said, allowed to be thought. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me that the question of racism is very loaded with all those things that are supposed to be thought, supposed to be said, etc.
2: Because, of course, what you call sort of the dominant narratives or ideologies, of course, the people who are in power are the ones who can determine the content of these narratives. Yes,
1: and the work in psychoanalysis will allow each patient, if they want to, to deconstruct those discourses and create a discourse of their own.
2: I think what's new here is the idea that we explicitly conceptualize the social and power into that psychoanalytic process, that we even think it as a factor in the deconstruction of a dominant narrative or how these hegemonic cultural symbols and, and signifiers, how they inform our own personal histories, what we're allowed to think, how we think about ourselves and others.
1: And we will go back to that more specifically in the next section. I would add that the terms black and white are making it harder to think about the object that they are supposed to refer to. We find that also in psychoanalysis where, for instance, the terms, I'm going to quote that in French, masculine and feminine, so masculine and feminine uh, in Lacan theory, are so concrete that it often I found push people to move toward very concrete thinkings when they use those terms and I think it's often um, it leads to a lot of misunderstanding in terms of what it means.
0: Are you saying that the terms black and white confuse the subject?
1: Yes because people who are referred to as white are not actually necessarily white and people who are referred as black are not necessarily black. It's actually much more subtle than that. And also the tendency to conflate racism with just a black and white issue when actually it's much, much broader. And um, I would say some groups might feel very uh, undermined in the suffering because the terms that are used to think about those concepts are actually excluding them.
0: In a way, it reminds me of what you said about the splitting and projection, that black and white may be part of a mechanism to
3: split and project then. Rather than projection and splitting, I think we're talking about perhaps just simply what some people consider normal and what some people consider unusual or, or not normal.
1: Before we move into the place of the analysts in this work, I would just would like to bring up the fact that we are going to talk about mostly work within a psychonetic office, yet it's not the only way one can work. So now we are going to move to how we work with racism in a clinical setting. Let's talk now about how we work with racism in a clinical setting.
3: In the clinical encounter, we may never get to the issue of racism, at least until we get to the negotiation of difference. So the patient walks in and assesses who we are, as whom we present ourselves to be, how we speak, how we're dressed, the color of our skin, the way we articulate words. And the patient then becomes known to us as somewhat similar, somewhat different on any or all of these different measurements. We may get to the issue of racism in the patient's past, or racism in our own counter-transference, but not necessarily and not immediately. So between any two people.
2: So in other words, we size each other up in the clinical encounter.
0: As you say, Tina, in each other, we're also exploring power, unconsciously probably, consciously in terms of authority. And sometimes authority is interlaced with race and class and all of that, but not necessarily is conscious
2: let's not forget that in the clinical encounter, we as the providers automatically carry a lot of power.
1: We need to keep in mind that the analyst has to be able to hear and respect the unrelatable parts of each patient's experience. We can't expect to know and to have um, experienced everything.
2: One of the things that, that I think is pretty hotly debated, maybe less in psychoanalysis and more sort of, certainly in research on service mental health services delivery, is the idea that patient and provider should be matched on social identity characteristics. So, for example, that it's preferable for black people to see black analysts. My thinking about that is that, number one, of course it is good to have a more ethnically and racially diverse provider body to have more people to choose from and that we be more diverse as psychoanalysts so that patients who would prefer to see somebody who is from a similar background as they are can do so. However, I feel like that this idea that matching is a good thing per se violates like a fundamental assumption of psychoanalysis, which is that one mind can relate to or make contact with another mind. I mean, I don't think we can ever really fully understand another person person's experience, but we all work based on the premise that we can make contact with another mind and another person's unconscious. It is a fallacy to think that one Indian person would understand another Indian person better. I think that forecloses a whole realm of fantasy, unconscious process, if we assume that we're completely constrained by our social identities.
0: It does make sense and it reminds me of the founder of our institute, Theodore Reich, who said that at the depth of our unconscious it's where we can find each other. My words, of course, I'm paraphrasing him. But he said that when we're able to tap into the unconscious and there is something in us as the analysts and in the patients, the analysands, that somehow connect us to each other. That's in the depth of the unconscious, which is a Freudian concept, of course. So that goes beyond the social markers or the social identities. And it talks about race, but in the wider context, meaning the human race. So that's what makes us human, the ability to connect to each other at some very deep level.
3: I would even add that I think most frequently our most rewarding clinical work is with people who are unlike ourselves. I find that actually bridging the gap and negotiating the difference between people of radically different backgrounds actually enhances the work.
1: We can hear how some um, physical or cultural resemblance can uh, maybe be useful to begin the treatment but it certainly will have to be deconstructed. I do ask my patients directly, I ask them why they decided to contact me and not another French-speaking therapist. And it doesn't mean it's going to lead to a lot, but it already starts to enlighten a little bit of the transference that is already happening. Obviously, as a French-speaking clinician, I get to see or be contacted by a lot of French people because they think that with me, things are going to be easier. And in some ways it is. They can refer to cultural event, or they can have a cultural references that I can share. But the part of the work is also to help them remember that even if they can feel that French people are in a certain way while they are in the US, if you go back to France, you can quickly realize that French people are of every kind. And that's something that as analysts, we really have to keep in mind not to indulge ourselves into this kind of mirroring that uh, can happen mm-hmm.
2: and maybe it can end up in sort of foreclosing experiences fantasies transferences because we sort of assume about each other that we know each other's experiences exactly. and if that's not explicitly explored which of course in analysis we have a there's a greater likelihood it will be explored maybe this is a greater danger in non-analytic treatments that there's sort of a whole set of assumptions and fantasies that don't get touched but still we have blind spots one thing that came to mind I think that that can motivate people or maybe a reason for why, especially people who belong to certain kind of oppressed minority groups, and I'm not just talking about race and ethnicity here, I'm talking about sexual minorities, you know, whole, for them to seek out somebody who at least on paper is like them is because there's a great fear, of course, of being pathologized. And I think that is a real danger. And I think it's something we have to really hold in mind whenever we deal with a patient who belongs to uh, a marginalized or oppressed minority minority group, and especially when we represent the, the dominant group, if you will. Like, for example, my whiteness in the encounter is something I have to keep in mind if I work with a patient who is not white or who is of color. What may signify and also what the fantasies may be about what that means to me or what that confers.
1: There is also another aspect of it is that sometimes people come with the fear that they can be judged because of, uh, for instance, their um, object's choice or other things like that. And actually what can happen during the course of the analysis is to um, hear that the fear to be judged is also coming uh, partially from inside and how those people can, um, despite themselves, uh, identify with values that are hating uh, who actually they end up being.
2: So you're talking about sort of the internalization of the oppressive mechanism, for example, internalized racism or internalized homophobia, something along those lines.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. That is not understood as uh, internalized at first and is always uh, at first only projected. Maybe the analysis will help the patient decipher more clearly when there is a real threat and when the threat is actually coming from within.
2: That points to the importance of us as analysts being very aware of all these oppressive social structures as, as potential sources of either internalized and or projected or also real threat to
0: the self. What I hear you saying is that it's not only a fantasy. There's, of course, fantasies. But we're talking also of a social structure that creates the ground for discrimination. And therefore, what the patient is saying is grounded in that reality. Fantasy is re- the reality of the patient, of course. But As
2: they've always said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you, right? I mean, yeah. You know, that old <laughs> saying... <laughs>
1: So I have a question for you, more about the question of power differential. So we've all trained at NPAP and now we are all licensed. And I was wondering if you thought that your approach to patients who are identified or who identify themselves as in the minority changed while you were in training and now that you're not. Do you feel like the way you work, maybe the way you relate or maybe the way patients related could relate to you or maybe other aspects of your work changed?
0: That has not been my experience. First, because most of my patients don't know when the transition happened. That's one point. The second point is that I had the opportunity of working with supervisors who were quite aware of social constructs and social identities. So during the process of my training, they were always pointing out things that I had blind spots. Because let's say the patient was from a different ethnic background or religious background, And they would point out, not necessarily with an explanation, but with a question. Like, I wonder if that is connected with the heritage of the
3: person. I think in the beginning of our training, we felt a certain comfort in commonalities with the patients that were assigned to us. And if the intake coordinator was making great assignments, we felt perhaps lucky. And I think a lot of that luck originally, in my mind at least, was hinged to the notion that I was like the person, that I could understand the person. And I think as I've become more and more experienced, it's almost the reverse, that I welcome people who are significantly different from myself. And I think as an American, maybe this is makes me a little different from the rest of you. I think Americans are very interested always in trying to figure out where the other person is coming from, what the background is. Because in this country, we really don't have a lot of expectations, except outside of our immediate communities. And especially in urban situation like New York, you can encounter just about anybody. So I think as we get more and more experienced as clinicians, we actually welcome the patients who are less and less similar to ourselves.
1: I felt that when we were in training, we were in some kind of agreement with a patient that we were in a precarious situation and that it certainly uh, created different expectations from patients. And I felt like I experienced it, especially when I moved office. My patient realized that I became licensed because I uh, started uh, raising a bit my fees. and But especially when I changed my office and I moved from TRCC to my own office that I currently use, I really felt like some people felt ashamed to stay. Like they could not relate to staying with someone who has an office, who has a window even if my office and my windows they're both pretty small it felt like there was a
2: shift I think you bring up an interesting point about the idea that when we were at TRCC that basically both the patient and I were kind of subject to another master if you will we didn't get to choose our own patients they were assigned to us the fees were assigned right someone else made the decision what fee was paid and there was sort of this third other force to which we were both sort of yet another power structure to which both the patient and we were subject if you will that almost created maybe a little bit of a twinship of sorts you know a little bit of an infantilization maybe to us it certainly changed up the power dynamic that we have now when somebody walks into your office and it's just your office and you're not reporting to a third who's in power over both of you
0: For those of you who are listening to us, TRCC is the Theodore Reich Clinical Center for Psychotherapy and NPAP is the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis,
1: which is the institute where we train. Now, let's bring up the question of how do you guys feel like you are reacting or working with the question of race or racism when it arises in the treatment. I'm going to give an example first, is that I know that I usually do bring up the fact that I look like, depending on the patient, maybe the aggressor, the oppressor, the upper class, I feel like when the negative transference arises, I want it to be in the room. I want to create a space for the fantasies to be verbalized. Then people I experienced that with seem to be engaged in talking about all the projections and expectations they could have the the good and the bad, how they would be worried that I would not understand them, how they feel like I could in some other ways and all that. Knowing that in addition to the question of how I look like, there's certainly the fact that people usually as I said before come to me because they That I'm French and I've been raised and trained in in France. And so there is all this ambiguity that has to be, uh, I think, at some point uh, brought up inside the room.
2: When I think about my work, I will open the door to talking about race. And it's something that sort of comes up, you know, in context. But it's not something I don't ask people in this very direct way.
1: With most of my patients. It happens that how I look is something that might create a conflict. And depending on when, but it usually happens at some point, I bring up the fact that maybe some association could be connected partially or totally, I don't know, to the fact that I look a certain way. And that maybe there are some thoughts on their part that are associated to how I look, and I, I want see. to bring, so you bring that bring it up, up in context. Of course, yes. I don't. They don't just sit and I uh, th- throw that at them. And I feel like it's very important in the sense that it can be thoughts that are associated with shame and fear. And so I try to play with the fact that I look like a certain type of person, and from that place to allow a dialogue that would be critical about what I would represent.
2: Would be helpful, maybe, if you could give a clinical example. Yeah,
1: you have someone who, who in France is grew up uh, experiencing him or herself as an immigrant, whether or not they actually were born in France and I, uh, administratively French. They can talk about their some of their everyday experience and sometimes all of a sudden you feel like the way they talk about it, oh, there's a certain, um, I would say in French, retenue, a slight pause in their discourse And well, it doesn't mean you're always right, and so sometimes you wait. And when it happens a few times, all of a sudden, you you can feel like, okay, maybe this pose might be about feeling like we don't get each other because what I look like would prevent me from understanding it. It might be not true, but it might be right. My experience is if I don't bring it up in those moments, the expectations that I would react in a certain way becomes almost real.
2: Becomes confirmed because you're avoiding, you're colluding, and not. Maybe there. something
1: like that. I find that addressing the prejudices is actually very helpful. And to be able on my side to hear how some people who are identified or identify themselves as immigrant, despite the fact that they're not in other ways, is actually helping the therapy to move on and to help people feel different about themselves through the connection that they have with what I
3: represent and the experience they have with me as a person. What I have found works for me is sometimes to make a joke at my own expense. I am mostly gray, obviously older than almost all of my patients, sometimes I'm as old as their parents. And when I get a smile of, you couldn't possibly understand this, I might make a joke about, well, the old white guy says, what something or another, and it usually breaks the spell of seriousness, and then they can really address what their experience might be that they think my, my experience couldn't possibly relate to. I think I wait for it to come up in such a way that it's obviously there, and it usually comes up in a somewhat humorous way. And then I strike while the humor is hot and just get it out on the table and then we can have a good laugh about it and take it from there. But it's not for me to dispel what I think may be their fantasy. I think I wait for them to pretty much articulate to me a misgiving about who I might be as a person. And then then we go there directly. And that's how I've dealt with it.
0: In my case, I usually wait for a negative transference to unfold, and then I would address it. I am aware that, for example, if I'm working for, with immigrants, the subject of citizenship might be in the room. But unless it shows up in the clinical material, I try to be very careful of not foreclose the process by interpreting too early a negative transference when I think it's about that. And in reality, perhaps the patient is not thinking about it
2: I think in my case it's interesting A particularly interesting consolation is when my patients are Jewish and they do or don't know that I'm German how that unfolds over time has has been very interesting and I know that certain people have never caught on it's certainly not something that I bring up myself but um, I'm thinking of one particular patient with whom I worked for six, seven years and over time I think she let me know that she knew that I'd grown up in Berlin and, and then it sort of entered the room years after started working with me and it became you know something we talked about you know her jewishness my germanness but it took a very very long time and it was something that this different also historical wound or difficulty uh, then was something we could talk about
1: and now we are going to open a little parenthesis on the question of ancestry which will lead us to the broader question of identity and identification The question of ancestry is very important in psychoanalysis. Mythical or real is something that we um, hear a lot when uh, the question of race or racism uh, is at stake. I've been very struck by the fact that patients I work with who are French and who uh, uh, identify themselves more or less as immigrants back in France, how they are surprised by how important the question of ancestry is for black American people. And before I give you guys the mic, I wanted to bring up a, just an anecdote uh, when I was working in Sarcelles, so the uh, poor suburb uh, in the north of Paris a lot of the teenagers there I was working with, we would be working um, actually in the street or uh, in um, offices that were not clinical offices. It's uh, places where people would meet, play uh, board games or discuss uh, work etc. And most of those uh, young teenagers were born in France, but they were from either Senegal or Mali or Cote d'Ivoire and they would often talk about the village they came from and it was very something very emotionally charged with a lot of fantasies about what it would look like. And one day we um, had a new intern who actually grew up in Africa. He was uh, very adamant that all those kids had no idea what they were talking about. He couldn't understand the importance of this fantasized origin and how it creates a sense of identity and how also it talks about a lack in their uh, sense of affiliation. It feels like French patients who are working with me now are very sensitive to how it it is even more important with black Americans. Do you guys have any experience with that in your clinical setting?
2: My feeling is that, as Peter had said earlier, that in the United States, it generally is a big deal, ancestry, because, you know, this is a country of immigrants. Except for the First Nations in this country, everybody has come from somewhere else. Some people have come voluntarily. Others have been forced here and enslaved. But I think that as a nation, U.S. Americans are pretty obsessed with their ancestry. And I think it's what's happening is this very interesting sort of move as, you know, we learn more about genetics it becomes it's this sort of a concretization of ancestry so that we have our social identities and our family histories and what we know and then now we can spit in a tube and we supposedly get this accurate result back about what our ancestry really is which just for the record is not very accurate and varies quite a bit and changes depending on how many people submit samples and so forth but we privilege this kind of knowledge about ourselves I think this is a very interesting sort of movement currently in history. So I cannot confirm that I think ancestry is a more important construct um, for people of African descent. I don't know what you guys think. I think it's sort of generally a big deal in the United States compared to European countries, for example.
1: What I heard and what seems more specific to uh, african American, is that they could not relate to their ancestry beyond slavery. And that makes a tremendous difference in terms of how you create your sense of identity compared to family of immigrants who are not immigrants anymore in some way. In France, where even if it comes from uh, colonization, they can trace back with a certain degree of certitude. While in the U.S., if you're black, it's very unclear where you come from after the boat delivered the slaves. It feels to me like it's, it might be a specific issue to that population, that population who didn't experience slavery might not be facing as intensely.
2: Clearly. But I think it's sort of a different issue, that the fact that it ends at a certain point and which, you know, is why... The, the capacity to, to track you, to trace your DNA to a particular region, for example, of Africa might be p- of particular interest or particularly mm-hmm. empowering maybe in a way.
3: I think my own African-American clients have generally felt they came from the South or they came from Chicago. But I think part of the tragedy of American slavery and American race relations is that we really deprive black Americans of any further sense of their own roots, as it were. So while it's it It may be a big preoccupation among young people to trace ancestry back as far as possible. It is only possible if you can do it through names. So, for example, because the names were changed as they came into Ellis Island in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, it ends there because there's no further traceable, there's no further anything traceable back. But if you come from England and you came over in the 1700s and there is a surviving name, you can go way, way back. It's virtually impossible for most African Americans to get back much further than what region they came through.
0: Another subject that may come or not into the therapy room would be the colonization Processes From my perspective, as a Puerto Rican, I am a colonized person. And within the narrative of Puerto Ricans, we are the mix of three bloods, meaning the Spanish blood, the black blood, and the original people's blood, the Tainos. So there is, in my growing up in Puerto Rico, There is a sense of diversity that most people don't understand outside Puerto Rico. And racism, for example, is expressed completely different in Puerto Rico as it is expressed in the United States. And what I have received through my heritage, we are a colonized country. Therefore, the way we look at ourselves and look at Americans is informed by that colonization process. So that complicates things.
1: We are going to leave here this short parenthesis on the question of ancestry, even if we know very well that a lot more could be said about it. Now we are going to move to the last part of this podcast on identity and identifications. We are building the self partially based on other projections and on what people impose on us, good or bad. And those projections have very performative effects. Tina, you want to talk to us about it?
2: We know this from our clinical encounters, but we also know, in my research, my other hat that I wear is the research hat. That experiences of racial discrimination affect health in very real ways, it's related to all kinds of physical and mental health outcomes, and also health risk behaviors, specifically substance use, sexual risk behaviors. Experience of racial discrimination make people ill. So one of the ways in which we can think about this is how does it literally get under your skin? How does it affect people? What are the mechanisms by which they get inside people. And so one of the constructs that I've been thinking about, um, what I've turned to, is number one, the idea of thinking of racism or racial discrimination as a form of trauma, as a traumatogenic experience. And then it's not a really far step to think of a construct that we know from Forenzi as the identification with or the interjection of the aggressor as a mechanism by which racist experiences can affect a person. So the idea is that somebody who is helplessly dependent, right? So Forenzi talks about it in the context of child abuse and a, a child who's dependent on an abuser. But we can think of, I guess, of all of us are dependent on society or the social structure, a larger social structure. So if this social structure mistreats us, inflicts trauma, inflicts pain on us, one way of maybe coping with that is to internalize racism. Sort of, I'd start to identify with certain stereotypes types about your group uh, your devalued group and this just doesn't just go for racism, it could be other forms of oppression as well. And this would be a way by which the oppression becomes internalized or gets under your skin. The idea is that in order to survive in a structure on which you're dependent for work, for food, for your daily life, one way in which you get by is to avoid the conflict of dealing with the fact that the social structure in which you live devalues you is to sort of buy into it. And so the reverse construct would be the idea that you're sort of insulated against that kind of noxious experience would be, you know, an experience of being critically conscious, recognizing racism, affiliating with, I mean, identity support, as you said earlier, affiliating with people who are of the same background or, you know, experience the same marginalization. And that could be sort of a way in which you can protect yourself or shield yourself against this form of internalization.
1: I guess it goes with something that I experienced working uh, in Sarcelles. that sometimes a fragility that could have been contained by um, belonging to a group of peers as a child or a teenager can become very disorganizing once someone is promoted to a new group with foreign values. In suburbs, it uh, can happen especially uh, with teenagers who have uh, very good grades in their uh, middle school, and there are some programs that help them move to a very good public schools within Paris. And some of the teenagers shared with me was how violent it could be for them to feel so isolated there and how all the things that they and their peers agreed in, I mean they wouldn't verbalize it this way this is me uh, translating in my own uh, vocabulary, but all the things that they in some ways tacitly agreed not to talk about were actually thrown to their face in a what they experienced in a, in a very aggressive way. That's what I um, understood as uh, what I would call the violence of inclusion. I know the term inclusion means something else. In the US but this idea that you are moved from a place that is still, even if it's ostracized by the dominant discourse and dominant population, still nourishing to inside the dominant culture. And it can be extremely difficult to feel legitimate. And when the inclusion is experienced as too forced, it can also lead to a proportionally strong rejection from the subject himself or herself.
2: You'll forever feel like a fraud, basically. You, you'll never belong. And Richard Rodriguez speaks about this, you know, being the scholarship boy, coming from a relatively poor Dino family. This is a, from the 80s, I think. And then being the scholarship boy going to a predominantly white school and being sort of forever alienated from his family of origin, from his roots, while never belonging to the new class. Yes,
1: the, uh, the ex- then an exclusion happens yes. when you come back.
2: You know, then you never belong anywhere again. It
1: feels to me that as a psychoanalyst, it can be uh, interesting to try to keep in mind both the social reality of those experiences, but also the fantasy aspect of identity and try to help patients understand as much as possible because it seems to me that those sense of insecurity are rooted very deeply but still to help them get a sense of how much it is a fantasy in a hope to help them in some ways fight back at least that was my perspective on that
3: My own clinical example of this, introjection of the uh, bullying voice, I have a number of patients who were violently bullied as children and who, in the formulations of Ferenczi, basically removed the threat from without by internalizing it where it could be controlled. And this internalization or introjection of the bullying voice becomes a defense mechanism against the attack from without. And of course, then they are stuck with a voice inside of them that is saying all the negative things that were said to them by the bullies. And long after the bullies have dispersed and long after their lives have completely changed, they seem stuck with the same voice saying the same things, only now it's coming from inside of them. And for this reason, what Tina wrote had a lot of resonance for me, even though I have not encountered this in the context of racism per se, but I have encountered it in the context of bullying, and also in the context of women who were beaten by their mothers as children who have taken to basically beating themselves. It arises in, in instances where the dependency needs of the child are not being met. There is no recourse to another adult. And what we end up with is exactly what Tina was describing as the introjection of the negative.
1: I think you can see in racism how this is, has become a very general dynamic. How what you're describing within a family is actually happening in terms of a society. Exactly. And that is a, a very important part of racism.
3: Exactly. It's a defensive maneuver in which the worst thing that could possibly be said about you is now being said to you about yourself. And I think we see this in a variety of context in our work.
2: If we think about Fairbairn talks exactly about that dynamic in a number of, I guess, object relational schools of thought, we see that as sort of the basis of depression is sort of the the taking in of either abusive or neglectful, not good enough environment to protect uh, the early objects, basically, because it's intolerable to perceive the early objects as abusive or insufficient. And so therefore it's taken inside.
1: And I think it, uh, in some ways, leads us back to what we mentioned earlier about the anticipation of being excluded. And I think as a psychoanalyst, it's very important for us to, once again, maintain a connection between uh, the fantasies that are associated with this expectation of being excluded or attacked, but also the reality of it. And this is a general position, but it becomes even more important when we are dealing with questions around race and racism, to be able to hear from our place there are so many things that we did not experience that our patient experience, and it would be extremely hurtful to the treatment to pretend that we did. I think there are many ways to relate without having to pretend that we had the same experience. For instance, you can uh, certainly work with someone who had uh, parents who uh, survived uh, the Shoah without having yourself parents who uh, survived the Shoah. Yet it would be completely hurtful for you to say, oh, of course, I understand exactly what you mean, because you can't. But still you can relate, still you can create some kind of connection that will help your patient to feel less alone in this situation and still respected in the authenticity and I would say uniqueness of their experience. We are going to leave it here for today and now the reading recommendations.
2: Parenzi, confusion of tongues. Which, interestingly, was suppressed and was sort of the reason, you know, he was kind of thrown out of the psychoanalytic community, or one of the reasons, maybe it was the final straw. It wasn't published in the United States until 1949, even though he wrote it in the early 30s, because it was so controversial.
1: Before we were uh, recording the podcast, you know, you mentioned a very interesting distinction between Ferenczi's point of view and Anna Freud's point of view. Could you just summarize for our audience? Uh,
2: Very briefly, I think, number one, Ferenzi's work, Ferenzi's article, I think, nineteen. 1932, he wrote it, predates Anna Freud's book on the defenses of the ego, Mm -hmm. which includes the identification with the aggressor. But very briefly, I think in Firenze's work, the idea of the identification with or the introduction of the aggressor is really sort of the basis for the ongoing oppression, if you will, of the victim and the continued victimization, while Anna Freud has quite different take, where the identification with the aggressor becomes more of an adaptive defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is more that kind of what's done to you is acted out or inflicted maybe on someone else. This is very brief.
3: Peter. Uh, The paper that I found somewhat helpful called Cultural Dimensions of Intersubjectivity, Negotiating Sameness and Otherness in the Analytic Relationship. It's a 2011 paper by Julia Davies published in the Psychoanalytic Psychology and available on the PEP web.
0: Edgar, do you have something to recommend? Tina, Paul wrote a short piece on free associations, which is the newsletter of the candidates at MPAP. And I would suggest that you read that paper. It talks about the connections between health and racism and internalization and interjection. So a wonderful short piece.
1: You will find the paper in uh, the Facebook page or Twitter account. I will suggest something a little bit different that would not require you to read anything. I would recommend watching the TV show Westworld. It's not specifically about racism or race, but it certainly talks about feeling like a certain person and being addressed to as another which I think is certainly at the core of people who experience racism, not only racism, segregation in general. I find the show makes a very good point through the metaphor of androids, how they can illustrate this gap and how disorienting and uh, destabilizing it can become.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to participate.
0: Bye. And this is Edgar Danielson.
3: This is Grégoire Pierre,
1: and you have been listening to discussions on psychoanalysis.